dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Media, and in this episode, we will start, as usual, with a great big headline rundown, touching on everything from the major leadership transition at Dance Theatre of Harlem, to news about Dance World labor negotiations and fair employment practices, to Dance Data Project's just-announced Gender Equity Index. And then we'll slow down a bit for a longer discussion about the news that The Phantom of the Opera, Broadway's longest-running show, will be closing in February, and what that reveals about COVID-era comebacks and the future of Broadway more generally. But before we get into all of that, here is your reminder to check out the Dance Edit Extra, our premium audio interview series, which is available on Apple Podcasts. Our newest episode, created in partnership with the talent agency McDonald Selznick Associates, is such a good one. We've got entertainment industry titans Marguerite Derricks and John Carafa talking about the very specific challenges and opportunities that come with choreographing for television because on a TV set, choreographers are often wearing many, many different hats at the same time, and nobody knows that better than Marguerite and John, who've worked all over that scene. If you've turned on a TV anytime in the past decade or decade and a half, odds are you've seen their work. So you can find their episode by searching for The Dance Edit Extra on Apple Podcasts or by following the direct link in this episode's show notes. All right, now it is headline rundown time, and we're starting this week with two really difficult losses for the dance community. Yes, the Ukrainian ballet dancer Oleksandr Shapoval has been killed in combat. Shapoval was a principal dancer with the National Opera of Ukraine, and he passed away in the Battle of Mayorsk in the Donetsk region of the country. He was 47. Sarah Kaufman wrote a piece in the Washington Post about how his death crystallizes the costs of this war. Um, We have that story linked in the show notes. The U.S. dance world also lost a legend recently, Tina Ramirez, who founded Ballet Hispanico in 1970 to help address structural inequities in the arts, and then helped it grow into the country's leading Hispanic dance performance and education organization, passed away last Tuesday. Ramirez was 92 years old, and her influence was profound. It's such a loss. Such a loss. But she left behind an incredible legacy. Yes. Dance Theater of Harlem recently announced that Virginia Johnson, its artistic director since 2009, is retiring from the role next year. She will be succeeded by Robert Garland, the company's resident choreographer and the director of its school. Two two living legends, but very big change there. Yeah, yeah. I was also excited to hear that Ty Jimenez would be coming back to Dance Theatre of Harlem to direct at school. That feels very right. As does Robert Garland becoming the next leader of the company. That also feels like destiny. But kind of a bittersweet announcement, too. I just, I, it's hard to imagine DTH without Virginia there in some capacity. I wonder what her next chapter will be. I know, I know. She's so much a part of that legacy. Um, I mean, obviously they both are, but um, yes, it'll be very exciting to see what her next move is. Yeah. Well, here's news about a new chapter for Misty Copeland. She has launched the Misty Copeland Foundation, a nonprofit organization aiming to increase diversity in dance and to pursue social justice through arts activism. The foundation has a new initiative called Be Bold that will offer a free 12-week program for children 8 to 10 years old, beginning this month at two boys and girls clubs in New York City. And part of the goal there is to help more students have the experience that 
Copeland herself had. She enrolled in her very first dance class at a boys and girls club when she was 13. And that, of course, ended up transforming her world. So it's really inspiring to see Misty's commitment to this kind of work, especially work that creates pipelines for young students who might not otherwise find ballet. Yes, absolutely. And I went to the launch event last week, and it was just so moving and so beautiful to see those young dancers um, demonstrating and the teachers and the passion that was in that room. It was just really, really inspiring and uplifting. This year's Dance Magazine Award honorees have been announced. Congratulations to Kyle Abraham, Lucinda Childs, Armand Cornejo, Brenda Dixon Gottschild, and Diane McIntyre. And congratulations also to Chairman's Award winner Jim Herbert and Harkness Promise awardees Johnny Cruz Mercer and Kayla Farish. Oh, such a great list. Lydia and I were both lucky enough to be on the selection committee this year. And even just like being in the Zoom room with the other members of that group was an honor. So yes, congratulations all around. Such an honor. Um, Here for a change is some happy Broadway news. A revival of Sweeney Todd is coming to Broadway this spring with Josh Groban and Annalee Ashford leading the cast and Stephen Hoggett, who is absolutely everywhere these days doing the choreography. Actually, the revival was a very poorly kept secret. Rumors have been swirling for a bit now, but it's great to see the news officially confirmed. And the upcoming play, White Girl in Danger by Michael R. Jackson, will have its world premiere in the spring of 2023. Jackson is the Tony and Pulitzer Prize-winning writer of A Strange Loop, and White Girl in Danger will feature choreography by Raja Feather Kelly, who also choreographed A Strange Loop. Exciting stuff. Yes. Yes, please, to all of that. I'm so glad we don't have to wait another, like, three years for the next Michael R. Jackson musical. I know. that sometimes happens in the theater world. I know. Very exciting. All right, back to ballet now. World Ballet Day is back. The international celebration featuring live streams of classes and rehearsals from companies around the globe will return for its ninth year on November 2nd. This is actually the first time it's happening in November rather than October. As has become usual, the Royal Ballet and the Australian Ballet will anchor the event, but other participating companies have yet to be announced. And it's worth noting that in the past, the Bolshoi has been a significant contributor. Uh, Given the current geopolitical circumstances, that seems unlikely this year, but stay tuned. Ballet Hispanico director Eduardo Villaro and Calpuli Mexican Dance Company director Alberto Lopez have been named to Crane's 2022 list of notable Hispanic leaders. Congratulations there as well. Yes. And yet more congratulations are in order because the 12th annual Clive Barnes Award finalists have also been announced. The awards honor excellence in both theater and dance. This year's dance finalists are Zimmy Coker and Erica Lal of American Ballet Theater, Mira Nadon of New York City Ballet, and Jake Trebus of Gibney Company. A lot of New York favorites there. Yes. Continuing with New York City-based dance news, New York City Ballet and its dancers have reached a new labor agreement to help offset the losses of the earlier part of the pandemic. As part of the three-year agreement, which was ratified by the union AGMA earlier this year, City Ballet will raise salaries for dancers and restore some benefits that were halted due to COVID, including vacation pay and contributions to retirement accounts. Sam Wheeler, AGMA's national executive director, said in a statement that the contract was, quote, a great example of what can be achieved when management and unions work together. 
And though this uh, next story doesn't involve unions per se, that idea of an organization helping management better serve dancers was kind of a through line in Point's recent piece about CODA, which is a pioneering talent agency for ballet dancers founded by Rebecca Haw. And it plans to eventually represent artists from other classical disciplines as well, including music. It is exciting to see more and more of the dance world, and particularly the ballet world, begin to acknowledge that, hey, dancers deserve the same kinds of employment protections that pretty much all other workers get. And I know that like, there's, of course, a lot of labor organizing and advocating going on beyond the ballet world, and, and City Ballet's negotiations, for example, do seem informed by that. But I mean, advocating for and getting dance-specific protections like intimacy coordinators, part of that City Ballet contract, that is really encouraging stuff. So in the show notes, we have links to Point's excellent story on the Ballet Talent Agency, which Lydia edited, shout out to Lydia, <laughs> and also to the New York Times piece on the City Ballet contract. Here's some more encouraging news. Dance Data Project announced that it will launch a gender equity index for the dance industry. The index is modeled on the Bloomberg and Equileap indices, among others. DDP plans to score the largest 50 ballet companies in the U.S. based on their advancement of gender equity. So how are they going to do that? This fall, the organization will send those companies a survey with questions about the commissioning of female creators, women in leadership positions, and other factors that contribute to a more equitable workplace, like does the company have mechanisms for reporting sexual assault, or do they offer lactation rooms or child or elder care options? So DDP will then use an algorithm that combines those responses with other findings from their research, generating an overall equity score for each company, and it will issue its official list of rankings in early 2023. So stay tuned. That is a potentially game-changing development. Yeah, I can't wait to read the results of that. New York City Center has announced its new leader. Michael S. Rosenberg, the managing director of the McCarter Theater Center, will succeed Arlene Schuler as the city center president and chief executive starting November 1st. Schuler had spent 19 years at the organization. So many leadership transitions. Um, okay, heading to TV land now. Since our last episode of this podcast, Dancing with the Stars has announced its complete season 31 cast, premiered the season on Disney+, Plus and actually sent one cast member home. They are not messing around. The star casting for this first season on the streaming platform is remarkably starry. It includes Selma Blair and Wayne Brady and Jordan Sparks and Shangela, who is the show's first drag queen contestant, as well as the previously announced Charlie and Heidi D'Amelio of TikTok fame. The season also features the return of pros Mark Vallis and Louis Van Amstel, and the first elimination, which happened in the premiere episode, it's just brutal, sent Sex and the City actor Jason Lewis home. Um, I'm just going to call it now. Wayne Brady's going to win this thing. Interesting. I could see that. It's quite a cast they have this season. Yeah. I mean, I'm basing it on a single performance, but <laughs> also a, a lifetime's worth of other performances. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> A Disney original documentary on Anthony Madhu is in the works. Madhu is the Nigerian ballet student who went viral in 2020 in a video that showed him dancing barefoot on a rainy street outside Lagos. He was subsequently awarded a scholarship to Elmhurst Ballet School in the UK, where he now trains, and the documentary will follow his journey. Another very exciting new project in the works. Yeah, very curious to see that. 
Last week was Fashion Week here in New York, and the big Vogue World Show, which was described as a, quote, runway show and fashion experience, end quote, basically turned its catwalk, also known as New York's West 13th Street, into a giant dance party. The models included Mikhail Baryshnikov, who added his own choreography, of course, and American Ballet Theater's Gabe Stone Shayer, who looked fabulous as per usual. The show also featured performances by Howard University's Ulala La dancers and Lil Nas X with choreography by Sean Bankhead. It was a great, big, fashion-y dance circus. And I mean that mostly as a compliment. And now for something completely different. Uh, <laughs> the Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert recently took aim at Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness program. She told Fox News that it was, quote, robbing hardworking Americans to pay for Karen's daughter's degree in lesbian dance theory, end quote. But Twitter users aptly pointed out how interesting and cool that very degree would be. Yep. <laughs> I actually, I, as that started trending, the number of people in our Twitter feed saying, uh, I teach lesbian dance theory, or um, I am lesbian dance theory. That was yes. pretty fantastic. Just yes. shout out to all the brilliant queer dance scholars out there. Yes. And that is exactly what my Twitter feed also looked like at the time. <laughs> And we have one late-breaking addition to our rundown, which is a happy addition. Kian Ross has been named Pacific Northwest Ballet's first-ever associate artistic director. Ross has been with PNB for more than two decades as a dancer and a choreographer and a teacher and most recently director of company operations. Now he'll be helping artistic director Peter Bowl with programming, hiring, and casting, among other duties. I mean, Ross could not be better qualified for this job, and it's also really heartening to see a Black artist in this kind of leadership role at a major ballet company. Yes, a huge congratulations. So that marks the end of the official headline rundown, but if... Like us, you are a dance news fiend. Please make sure to check out the Dance Media Events calendar. Um, it has even more fully updated listings for all kinds of performances and events and also auditions. So to stay up to date on the things we maybe didn't get to here on the podcast or to add your own events to the calendar, because you can do that too, head to dancemediacalendar.com. Alrighty, moving now into our longer discussion segment. Um, there was a surreal kind of feeling in the air late last week when the news broke that the Phantom of the Opera would close on Broadway on February 18th. On the one hand, that wasn't a big surprise. It is a massively expensive show. And because it's played for so long in New York City, it relies heavily on tourists who've been slow to return after COVID shutdowns. But on the other hand, Phantom has been on Broadway for almost 35 years. Like, what even is Broadway without this show? And I guess the scarier question there is, if a juggernaut like Phantom can't make it in this pandemic-altered landscape, what show can make it? Um, Phantom is far from the only long-running and or Tony-winning production to close or announce plans to close recently. Dear Evan Hansen just closed. Come From Away's last show is October 2nd. The Music Man is going to close on January 1st. Beetlejuice just announced right before we started recording that it's closing even after its big dramatic resurrection at a new theater this spring, which I think a lot of people had hoped would give the show new momentum. So what do all these closures tell us about the health of Broadway right now and about what its future might hold as it continues to navigate COVID fallout, among, you know, other issues. Yeah, it clearly remains an uncertain time. 
going back to the pieces on Phantom, it was even surreal just to read that Phantom on Broadway has been losing about a million dollars per month since it reopened last October. Just, right. you know, that show is, you know, it's such an institution, you know. And the the Post article pointed out that we might see a slimmed down version of Phantom in a few years. Um, its producer, Cameron McIntosh, did just that with Le Mis in London, um, which is now at the Sondheim Theater with a new director and a more modest set. Um, and in the meantime, Phantom's Broadway closure will free up its home of the Majestic Theater for the first time in about 35 years. And that's the best musical house on Broadway. And Schubert chair Bob Winkle had originally wanted to house the upcoming musical Some Like It Hot in the Majestic, but didn't want to displace Phantom. Uh, so that could be a possibility in the future, though, you know, if the controversy around that particular musical um, has generated. Wait, what's the controversy around Some Like It Hot? I've missed this entirely. Um, I believe the controversy is about gender roles because it's you know, uh, all about very outdated portrayal of drag and that sort it. of issue. Okay. So that one might lead to some low ticket sales, uh, might not end up warranting a theater of that size, but of course, time will tell. And it was also interesting to hear Macintosh talk about you know the climate in which this is happening with global inflation, international tourism being on the decline, and so forth. Yeah, it was interesting to hear him actually cite global politics, in particular, the West's relationships with Russia and China as having, I think he said, changed the whole order in a way that's affected theater. That felt a tad melodramatic, but at the same time, he's not wrong. And that sure sounds ominous, right? Agreed. What does that mean going forward, especially in contrast to kind of these less prosperous times that we're in right now and how Phantom in its current form is such a product of that 1980s kind of spectacle and excess. Right. I mean, you know, it's interesting because in some ways, letting go of 80s style excess feels good from an artistic perspective. Like I I like the idea often of, of sort of slim down productions, quote unquote, because that often requires a different type of creativity on the part of directors and yeah, choreographers, how to make less feel like more, how not to rely too heavily on spectacular sets and effects to sell your show. But at the same time, nobody is excited about the idea of like constant contraction of things getting ever smaller. Right. Um, I guess it is worth noting that these shows that are closing, they're not all disappearing just because they're closing on Broadway. I think almost all of them are touring or about to tour. And I mean, Phantom is still running in the West End. There's a new production now in Australia. There's a Mandarin language production scheduled to open in China next year. I didn't know until this coverage happened that Antonio Banderas is apparently working on a Spanish language production. So it's very much still out there. (laughs) I just kept thinking back to almost exactly a year ago when Andrew Lloyd Webber was DJing the Phantom comeback party after like personally overseeing the show's reopening. And there was all this like hope and momentum around, you know, Phantom's big comeback. And it wasn't that it didn't get a COVID rebound. It sounds like actually ticket sales were okay for the first few months. It's just that rebound wasn't Wasn't as big as hoped and it hasn't lasted. So yeah, is this the new normal? Are we going to see numbers go back up as new boosters roll out as tourism revs all the way back up. What does the future hold? Yeah, I I just I wonder what will happen as COVID kind of continues to become normalized and precautions continue to be dropped and audiences 
begin to gather in groups more often. Do do you mean like the the balance, the delicate balance of alienating people versus bringing them into the theater when it comes to COVID precautions and regulations? Or that's essentially it, I guess. Um, I guess I'm thinking about how right now we're kind of living in a way that alienates a large group of people who are immunocompromised or disabled. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. number is probably, it sounds so morbid to say, but at the rate we're going, it's only going to grow. Mm -hmm. And how will that affect people's perceptions of going to the theater if the theater becomes a place where people, by and large, aren't really masked? Um, I know right now, I think the entertainment industry at large is pretty pretty strict, um, at least compared to a lot of other fields, about following COVID guidelines or protecting against COVID. How will that take shape going forward? And what will that mean, I guess, for productions and for audiences? Yeah, it's, it's, we've reached this kind of strange inflection point where, I mean, there have never been any clear answers, but it feels like especially right now, there are no clear answers. In the show notes, we have links to a couple of stories that talk about these recent closures and what they mean for the future of theater. I hope you can check them out. All right, that's it for us this week. Thanks, everyone, for joining. We'll be back in two weeks for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com.